we have embarked upon a journey through a book that is remarkable. I mean, what the Lord is, um, what the Lord does in uh, in Romans is create revival in our hearts, and uh, if we would go to chapter, you know what, let's start in verse 16, how about that? He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God unto salvation, for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentiles, And for in this gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And it says in verse 18 that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. We've just fed a child to the lions, apparently. We're going ancient Rome over there. For although, verse 21, they knew God, it might have been my child, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became foolish and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity, to the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Everyone welcome Sue. Because of this, it was in my periphery and I knew. I just, in the same way, verse 27, the men who were abandoned, just feel like it's going downhill, right? We got nowhere to go but up from here, right? I feel like we're, we're primed for a great day now. I'm very glad to see you, Keith, always. I'm just glad it wasn't me. Verse 27, in the same way the men who abandoned their natural relations with women were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. In verse 28, furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. And I think the King James says, what, isn't, or what is convenient or inconvenient, which I thought was a really funny way of wording that. He says then in verse 28, they became defiled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and malice. They are gossips and slanderers and God-haters and insolent, arrogant, and boastful. And they invent ways of doing evil. It's making new stuff up. And they disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Would you uh, pray with me? Father, we are uh, diving into your word today, which is a lamp to our feet and a light for our path, and it's our prayer that this could be that for us, that we could find our way in this world, in, in our lives. I ask that this, um, for me or anyone who's come here this morning, is not an academic exercise. This is a spiritual experience as we dive into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. If, um, if you have your little smartphones, Mine is an above average phone. I don't know that it's really smart, but it's right there in the meaty part of the curve phone. 
uh, uversion.com uh, Conduit Church. There's a live event there where you can follow along with the scripture that we're going through today and take notes that you can share with each other uh, or just chew on it. And I would encourage you if you are new here, or even if you're not, that you would uh, break out a little notebook, not because I'm that smart, but because sometimes God will speak to you. And if he starts speaking to you while I'm speaking, I want you to check out and just write down maybe what he's saying to you. You can always follow back along later, pick up. Just know that that's, uh, I think for me anyway, that's worked in my spiritual walk, that sometimes when the Lord is speaking, if I don't write it down, uh, coming alive, and he might, you know, I might go to Jeremiah 2, and you might get to the end thing, hey, but what about Jeremiah 3? We'll go for it. Just see what the Lord says there. Just know that that's uh, okay here. Maddie, would you come here for a second? I'm sorry, I did not give you a heads up on this. Madeline is my um, 15-year-old daughter, and um, I was thinking about you this morning. You can have a seat. Because Paul gives us in this passage some stuff that's kind of hard to swallow. And it reminded me this morning, some of you have been around a while, you've heard this story, but it bears repeating. Mother's Day. How old were you? Third grade. Third grade. We were at a, a church in uh, Garland and Gretel, you were there, and we were having a little conversation, you remember? And Maddie is one of our picky uh, eater children for some, well, for some things, random things. Like, what is the, uh, the, the food that you don't like that would be the most shocking to everybody here? Chocolate. Chocolate. Kid you not. <laughs> we're going to have her studied down at Vanderbilt, like people with lab coats and clipboards coming in just to, just to observe and see. Um, <laughs> So we were having a little conversation, me and a buddy at church, and you know how parents, when you're a uh, third grader, I've really agreed to some really dumb things with my kids just because I'm trying, yes, 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 yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, and that morning we were talking about uh, eating goldfish, okay, it's me and a guy at church swallowing goldfish at college. And, and Maddie says something along the lines of, I'd, I'd bet you a thousand bucks that I would do that. Yeah. She bet me $1,000 that she would swallow a goldfish. And I said, Maddie, I'll give you $1,000 right now if you swallow a goldfish, okay? Because you won't even eat broccoli, right? Chocolate, I mean, and you're going to eat a goldfish? That was the last of that conversation until a few hours later that afternoon. When Shannon and I are sitting on the couch, I remind you that it was Mother's Day. And Maddie comes like a raptor down the stairs. Boom, 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 boom. I did it, I did it, I did it. You owe me $1,000. And now Shannon is giving me that look. And I say, you did what? I did it, I, I ate the goldfish, you owe me $1,000. And there's that moment in every father's life uh, where you can say something that turns you in the, from the hero into a scam artist. And that was, there's a fine, and I just, I blew it. I said, Maddie, I was just kidding. And, and you know, and you know the wind up for tears, like sometimes it's a little soft and then it kind of builds. There was no build at all. This was just straight to the headliner. It just, boom, tears like rushing out of her eyes. Uh, because she was obviously quite emotional. She had to work up the character. And uh, would you mind telling him what kind of fish it was? A beta fish. And I want to set the scene here because a betta fish, because we are not very good with animals at our house, as you remember from our story last week from Shannon. Um, it's, the thing about a betta fish, its natural habitat is like a mud puddle, okay? So that's pretty much where we would let this bowl get to. So she scooped into this vile, bacteria-laden goo. She washed off the fish and somehow managed to muster the courage to come bursting down, you know, swallow, and I knew that she did, like there was no question like that she flushed it or whatever, because I, I would have heard it, and the, the sheer emotion, it was so real. Although my favorite part of the entire conversation was at one point when she goes, she's right in the middle of a sentence, and she goes, and then she just kept going, I'm like, that was the part where the fish died. She did not chew it. So, yeah, like that's any less gross. I mean, like, I don't know, like, like that. 
So at that point, Maddie ended up with, uh, we decided we would put $900, we would assign that towards her in a, uh, you know, uh, an investment account, which of course she's got in her mind uh, that it's gonna be like $1,000 cash, which I'm teaching her a valuable lesson about negotiating. You should have got that in writing up front. So, <laughs> so she got 100 bucks cash, at which point I said, now look at it, here's the, one of the funnier parts, it's not even your fish, Maddie. It's Ashley's, <laughs> what are you gonna do? <laughs> She says, well, I was going to buy her a new fish with $1,000. <laughs> so I was like, okay, part of the deal, you have to tell her that you ate her fish, <laughs> and you have to buy her a new fish. So, Maddie, thank you. Uh, and that's why she's... It was hard to swallow, wasn't it? Did it just slide right down? The thing about what Paul is saying here in Romans 18 is that when you first think about it, it's a little hard to swallow. But when you put the gospel inside of what he's saying, it just slides right down like a betta fish. He said that I am not ashamed of the gospel. And that is an important thing because when I look to other doctrines around the world, Allah, for instance, when your wife is a piece of property, when if you steal something, they chop your hand off, they uh, beat their women in the streets with whips and, and shame them. And I could go on and on about what we've seen in radical Islam and just this past week, a family, a husband and wife were convicted for murdering their three children in what is called an honor killing because they did not bring honor to their family. And so the father and mother, uh, according to uh, the laws of Sharia, were, uh, killed their daughters. Now, I could not say that uh, I am not ashamed of the news about Allah, because that is shameful. But when I look to the news of what Jesus did, I can see why Paul would say, I'm not ashamed of this. This is downright remarkable. Like, it's amazing news. And we were talking last week that it, the gospel itself is what reveals God's power, his ability, and his motives towards us. That we can be established in grace, even in our prayers, that I can go into the throne of grace to obtain mercy in a time of need. It says that in Hebrews that I could actually go boldly. It doesn't mean I go in like cocky and like a new sheriff in town swaggering in, but like a child walks into, you guys got kids now that your little boy, your little girl, they come into the house, they're not knocking, they come right in to know that this is daddy's thing and that there's mercy to be found there. It's his power, it's his ability, it's his motive. Another way to look at it is the way that Paul spells it out here in verse 16 and 17, that it is the thing that revives men's lives. The power of God inside of you, the dunamis is that word, that it literally revives us from inside. We are walking around with the power of God inside of us in any moment that we aren't feeling, even maybe even I would say experientially, but for sure when we're feeling the opposite of it, we're just not established in grace in that part of our lives because it's, we don't understand, it's already there. I, don't, I, I didn't chase him away. I'm not, he paid for that for me. And then it reveals his love to me because I'm not any longer in a position where I have to earn it, that I get to live by faith. But it says in that verse that he reveals his righteousness in the gospel. And what is crucial to us is to understand that God doesn't just look at sin and nod away and say, oh, you know, boys will be boys. You know how you do sometimes parents, especially when it's the last one coming down the pipeline. Things are kind of funny when they used to not be, because it's, well, it's, you know, he's funny. And then, you know, about seven years old, all that stuff that was funny, like the first 13 times, is not funny anymore, right? Because we, there are parameters that in our home that my child knows that there's grace and that there's love and, and at the same time that you don't, you don't burn the house down. Like, that's a rule, don't do that. That's frowned upon in our house. They're just things that, in our society even, that we wouldn't say that, well, you know, boys will be boys. They're, sometimes they're gonna kill people. God doesn't say that either, because in his righteousness, he reveals that he's right, that he doesn't look to sin 
and nod and wink and, uh, you know, takes it very seriously. And he paid an adequate price for it, a fair price. It's the doctrine of propitiation. How about write that down, huh? Propitiation, it just means simply this, that the wages of sin is death. And Jesus cashed my check. So I don't, that's not going into my bank account. My paycheck of death is now cashed and done away with. And so I am not putting on my righteousness. I'm covering myself in his righteousness. And that righteousness means simply this, that God is right. And so when he looks to our sin, he's not just looking at it to wink at it. Boys will be boys. And at the same time, it's not that he's going to wipe you out because of it. Instead, he wipes it away from us that believe. And what he is about to unfold here is this setting it up with the darkness of this world against the good news of the gospel. And he covers us all in the next couple of chapters. He starts out with the heathens, those that are without God, no interest in God. And then he moves on to, in case you thought he skipped you, the hypocrites. He skipped me. He goes from the heathen to the hypocrite, because it goes from they to verse chapter two, verse one, and then he goes, now you. And then he goes from that to the Hebrew. So the heathen, the hypocrite, and the Hebrew. He's gonna cover all of us in some way or another to show us this might be hard to swallow, but there's a reason why God doesn't look at sin with a wink and a nod, because there are consequences in sin in our lives. It's why he hates it. Not because of what it does to him, because of what it does to me and to you. And he starts out in verse 18 where he says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. If you're a note taker, unrighteousness, that is man sinning against man. If you look at ungodliness, that is sin against God. When Moses came down the mountain and he said, I give you these 15, 10 commandments. Oh, come on. Someone? All right, thanks, Tim. 10 commandments, four on one tablet that were about God. Don't put other gods before me. Four on that tablet, six on the other tablet that were about our relationship with each other. Don't kill each other. Don't commit adultery with each other. He covers them in unrighteousness and ungodliness. And it says that who suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. And that word suppresses is really important. How many of you have been in a boat before, right? And you're trying to go against the current. Now you have a motor and an engine, so you can kind of plow through it. But in his day, that, this would have a word that was like about the helmsman that was stirring the rudder to suppress the other direction against the current. And that's what he's saying, that when we suppress this, the truth, that, that we're just trying to steer it away from God. We are steering it, and it takes a lot of work, but we can get there. And it says, verse 19, because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. So they're not without excuse because although they know God, they did not glorify him, nor were they thankful. I read this, several articles from this guy, Jastro, who is a NASA scientist, a physicist, and he uh, astronomer, I'm sorry, and he says this, uh, I love this, talking about the way that creation speaks on behalf of God. He says, now we see how the astronomical evidence supports the biblical view of the origin of the world. The essential elements in the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are the same. This guy, by the way, is not a Christian, he's an agnostic, but this is what he wrote. He says, consider the enormousness of this problem. Science has proved that the universe exploded into being at a certain moment and it asks what produced, what cause produced this effect? Who or what put the matter or energy into the universe? And science cannot answer these questions. And he goes on to say, for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. 
He has scaled the mountain of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. He pulls himself over the final rock where he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. It speaks of him. Creation speaks of him. But Paul would go on to say that, and what we're witnessing, by the way, is the descent of mankind, the descent of society, and I would say the descent of us. That even though our eternal like security, that we're safe in his hands, that our lives, when we live this way, when we begin to exchange the truth of God for a lie, a descent begins to happen. It happens in our marriage. It happens in our family. It happens in our personal lives. And he says here that they became futile in their thoughts. This week has been a fascinating look at futile in their thoughts. When the Susan G. Komen Foundation decides to write a, to do away with their funding for an organization that supports abortion, this is not a political issue, please. It's a human rights issue. And then they reverse their thing, and all of a sudden you're like, are you crazy? Have you lost your mind? And the answer is yes, because they will become futile in their thoughts. You might have had those conversations. I had one that was very frustrating to me in my business life. We had decided to seek uh, professional sponsorships for one of our uh, clients at the time that was doing very well. And, and what you know in Christian music is that for the most part, corporations are not going to touch you because you're a Christian and they don't want to be offensive to anyone. But we somehow literally stumbled into a sponsorship with the organization Suzuki. And it was fascinating. We gave away motorcycles and a car and every stop on the tour, we were signing people up. And at the end of the tour, the numbers were calculated and the people at Suzuki were like giddy. Like they couldn't believe that it was that successful. And you know how it is, we're believers. And so anybody gives us a little bit of a nod and thinks you're not crazy, well, we'll buy your stuff. So. We get to the end of the tour, we're getting ready to do another tour. We get on the phone with the, the folks at Suzuki and they say to us, yeah, you know, we figured out that um, the lady that we dealt with was a Christian, but her higher ups figured out that you guys were Christians. And they decided that, well, we can't sponsor that because we don't want to be offensive to anyone. We want to be inclusive. And so we, we are excluding you from this. And no numbers, no math, no logic, no reason could get through to them because they were futile in their thoughts. I had a little bit of an experience this uh, weekend too when I uh, put a post up on Facebook and it sort of blew up. And, um, but what I saw was interesting enough and I, I, I saw some folks who were futile in their imaginations. <laughs> there was a guy on there in, on the topic of abortion that made these statements. In, re in reference to abortion, and I want you to know, he wasn't tongue-in-cheek, he was quite serious. When he said, by the way, I'm against abortion and I would encourage anyone who is considering it to seek alternatives, but you're all correct when you say that we are sick and weak, that's why the fewer of us, the better. Facts are facts. A man of science, Stephen Weingard, would say that because of the book Freakonomics, saying, well, if the, because there's a lack of, uh, because of abortions, crime has gone down. And that's when he says that there's pretty convincing, I skipped over that, the middle one, evidence that abortion has reduced crime rates. Just saying. Good and evil is not as black and white as some would have us to believe. That's ridiculous. Right? In the logic of it, of the rights of a, of a human being, that's a ridiculous thing to say. So let's go to Haiti and then kill those children because there'll be fewer people to have to feed. And there would be one guy who would then, because what then Paul would say was not only do your minds become futile, then your hearts become darkened. And uh, this guy, what a gem, says if we'd stop sending them food, speaking about the kids in Haiti and Africa, we just, uh, then we would, uh, they'd just starve. And then we wouldn't have to worry about the Christian's children's funds, what he was saying. And he said a few other things that were absolutely horrible. Because not only your thinking becomes futile, then your heart becomes dark. And that is why when you look to the global, the geopolitical situation on the planet, and you see a guy like Ahmadinejad in Iran, you see a guy like uh, Mugabe in Zimbabwe, Assad in Syria, and I could go on and on. The Lord's Resistance Army in Uganda where they cut off the lips of a, of a woman because she spoke out against them. They would 
come in and have their children kill their parents and then kidnap them and take them into the army. And you think, how could I, how does that even happen? Because their hearts would become darkened. That is happening in our world right now. 400 people were shot dead in the streets of Syria yesterday by their own government because their hearts were darkened. It's a natural part of the decline of what happens in a society when we exchange the truth of God for a lie. And he would go on to say, professing to be wise, verse 22, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. And therefore, because of this, because of what they'd done in exchanging the uh, or God's incorruptible image and creating it in man's image. Therefore, God gave them up to uncleanness and the lusts of their hearts and to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature, the creature, the creation, rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Paul outlines in those two verses three things. He says that they changed the glory of God into an image made like man. He says that they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and that they worshiped and served the creation more than the creator. And gang, that happens in our lives. It's so easy to fall into that trap. We could talk about it on a national level, but on our own level, did God really say that I need to, you know, that, uh, that all that are uh, godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution? I'm kind of comfortable here. And so I begin to say, well, that's, that's nice but what kind of a loving God would do that to me? That's not the God I serve. These are conversations I've had. I don't know about you, but I've had these conversations, and that's what people have said. Well, that's not the God I serve. He wouldn't do that. We're more than conquerors. But I begin to exchange the truth of God for a lie, and then I begin to worship the creation, me. In, in our world, especially in the American world, consumerism is our God. And when I am consuming for the sake of consuming, when you listen to the news, when they say that the fix for our economy is to get what? Lower interest rates so that we can spend more, so we can borrow more. That when we're doing that, that is ultimately worshiping ourselves. When I am wandering into a church body and seeing if this is where God wants me, if the first list of questions that I'm asking myself is, what's in it for me? Ah, these chairs are not very comfortable. There's no cup holder. The kids, this, I mean, it, it, it's not that these things are bad to ask, or, but if that's the first thing out of my mind and it's the only thing I'm basing my decision on, I'm becoming a consumer and not a disciple and I'm worshiping the creation and not the creator and the decline happens. It can happen when we look to the scriptures and we seen it recently with a pastor with a very national platform when he says that, I don't know, if I, a loving God would never sentence someone to hell. And here's what's happening. I am creating God in my image because that's what I think instead of me creating, letting myself be created in his image. I'm becoming the judge of the Bible instead of the Bible becoming the judge of me. And so when I say, ah, I don't know if a loving God would really do that, love wins, bro. And I want you to know that love does win, but it loves because it demands a choice. That's what he's outlining here. What worth is it to talk about salvation if there's nothing to be saved from? My wife and I have been married for 17 years, and if she was forced, no, maybe some days you feel that way, but if, if she was forced to be with me, that's not love, that's slavery. If, and I assure you she did, had a gajillion options to marry instead of me, and then, but she chose me, that's love. And that is why the Father gave us a choice. We are not automatons, we are not Spock. We are created in his image and part of that image is the power and the ability to choose. When we go down this road, when I begin to rewrite the scripture to fit my deal, to create God in my image, because that's more comfortable for me, because I don't know if a loving God would do that. Then the next step in the decline happens. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. 
For even their women exchange the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, and men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. This is a goldfish for our society right now. Nobody wants to swallow that. We got believers in Christ out there on the road preaching that we have to acknowledge that this is a viable option for them. And I've heard the quote, because what kind of a God would make me this way and then not expect me to have a loving and caring relationship? Then I'm creating God in my image. But that's how I want God to create me. And I understand that there's a struggle in it, and that, but at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's a sin. It's, it's not natural. But here's why I think more than anything else why God hates it. Like all of our sin, keep in mind, there's a whole list of them. So if you want to jump on this bandwagon, get a second. Someone will jump on yours. The picture that God created for his relationship with us, Jesus says that when he comes back, what's he coming back for? His bride. The husband and the wife, it creates this picture of the Godhead in us. God is not male nor female. There is a, a name for God, El Shaddai, which is actually it, as, it's the all-breasted one. It's a maternal picture of God. When we are married, we have male and female. We complete each other in ways that God designed and is painting a picture for us for eternity. And that is why it is a perversion against what he has set forth in his scriptures, in his word for us, his promise to us, that there are things that are beyond even our understanding, but he put that picture in place for us. And when I begin to rewrite the scriptures, and gang, that's what's happening. I've had many conversations. I mean, I love my brothers and sisters that are in that community, but when I talk to them and they, what you have to do to get to where they've gone is to begin to tear this page out, rewrite that page, skip over that page because now I'm creating God in my image instead of the other way around. It's a natural part of a progression of, of us personally or of society in general. And it says that, verse 28, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, that's a, uh, something we are seeing in our society right now. You come into this uh, school on a, on a Monday and you pray with your class, you are violating the law. There is a uh, principal and a director, I think a, a sports athletic director in Florida, that prayed before uh, an event at the school. It was, uh, it was not during school hours, but they invited some people to come for the event. They looked before the dinner and one said to the other, hey, do you want to bless the meal? This wasn't a slap on the wrist or a uh, internal discipline. They were criminally indicted. A federal prosecutor with the entire weight of the United States government charged them. They went to trial, as you can see, they won. But boy, not without a cost. If you've ever been through any sort of a proceeding, whether it's civil or criminal, you know that this is an exhausting thing to do to your family. In our society, when we take God out of our knowledge, the progression downward continues. It's all around us. Right now in New York City, they are thumbing their nose at federal law. There was a nine to zero victory won by a guy named Jay Seculo that says that a church can meet in a school. He argued it on the grounds of equal access. What Bloomberg is doing is thumbing his nose at it and challenging the courts. And he's got a federal judge to back him up. They're making it a separation of church and state. It could go to the Supreme Court. It likely will. And we have no idea how they would rule in this day and age. If they rule that way, the very next day, every church in America that meets in a school will be in violation of federal law and kicked out. That's happening right now in New York City. We've taken God out of our knowledge. It's why this underground, conduit underground, I think is important for so many reasons. Ted and I were talking this morning that we so take for granted what we have right now. We don't know. Maybe next year this time we can't meet here. But boy, what if we're already ready?
What if we really meant that it wasn't about the building anyway? It's about us being the body of Christ together. Taking God out of our knowledge on a national level is what's happened in China. Well, I say Pakistan, they just put a different God in their knowledge. But in our society, we've been very blessed and we've been very fortunate, uh, but we don't know. I mean, sometimes what, I, what I've seen, what you've, many of you know, is that around the globe, that when the church is under attack, when the church is under persecution, it grows exponentially. So all those prayers for revival, remember Paul prayed to go to Rome, didn't he? He got to go, all expense paid trip, in handcuffs in a uh, boat. We're praying for a revival, maybe we'll get to get there, but through a, a different boat than what we were planning on taking. Established in grace, I don't care. Bring it on, because the cause of the gospel that I am not ashamed of, kick us out, we'll meet in the parking lot. Because this isn't about a school or a building or whatever, it's about Jesus Christ, him crucified. He would go on to say this in verse 29, and we're, I know we've, you're thinking, well, we got a long way to go. I got it. I got your back. Verse 29. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy and murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They're whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud. See what I mean? This is all on the same list, so just pick out yours, right? It's all there. Haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. When you go through that list, there's a couple that stood out to me that, that I would, maybe we would want to skip over because, yeah, you know, I got, you know, I got that one. Because, you know, obviously, uh, when I look to something like fornication, I think, well, I'm married. That word is the word pornea, which encompasses everything, okay? So when you are struggling with Pornography, it's covered under fornication. In covetousness, it's just wanting more of what you already have enough of. Didn't we just see that in our society that we needed more, 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 spend, 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 and before long the bubble formed and it blew up and covetousness is not a victimless sin. Down in the paragraph, it says haters of God, which I found to be fascinating because in our society, what we're seeing in this past couple of years aren't just atheists anymore, they're anti-theist. This joker has decided that he wants to do a rock without God uh, thing at the, at the uh, Marine base because, and actually one of my bands played at the, the, the event that had uh, that Billy Graham sponsored at this base. And so this guy says, well, we want equal access. And, and look, and at the end of the day, like, I really don't care about that part. Because what he says is, I just want respect for, uh, you know, atheists. And, but when you read this article, the quote that he says is, isn't about respect. They actually just says it in passing. He says, I'm looking at our army and all these Christian symbols, and I just have to ask myself, what do we got to do to get rid of all that? He doesn't want respect. He wants Christianity wiped out. And whether you're Dawkins or Bill Maher, that's the goal. It isn't about respect for them. It's about abolishing us. They are haters of God. He says covenant breakers. Actually, this is one here. Without understanding, I thought that was funny. Uh, because it's kind of just like it sounds. Stupid. One word. Snooky. I mean, our society, it's like, really? We're going to put that on TV? And right before that, it's actually the word boasters, which is, it's an empty pretender guy. And again, I just made me think of all the reality shows, the Real Housewives of whatever county, uh, fill in the blank. And these are just people with nothing. It's vapor. They're just, you know, they just put them on TV because they're ridiculous. And we want to see ridiculous. But of course, what we really see that in that is the empty promises of, let's bring it home, every political race we've ever seen. <laughs> I'm going to do this, and I'm going to put a man on the moon. We're going to build a city up there. No, you're not. Like, you just can't do it. It's, and it, I'm, people, every election I've ever been through, I, you hear, you go, it's every time you hear the promise, the promise, the promise, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to fly, I'm going to, you know. And, but you, there's something you just can't do, so it's an empty promise. It's not a, a slap against one politician or the other. That's just the empty promises that God says that we're going to experience 
in our society. And he talks about covenant breakers, which we've seen as well with the deal that we made a promise and we broke it. And that's great to point the finger at a politician, but in our own lives, how many times have we broken that covenant with our spouse? I'll let you chew on that one. The last one that I've, I've, we can chew on and then just literally circle this thing in for landing is when he says the word implacable. I think it's in the New King James Version. I, don't, I just love that word. But the word, when I, re- I'm so, what does that even mean? He's talking about being slippery. Like, I can't even get you to make a commitment to something. You, you've been around somebody like that, right? I just can't get my thumb on you. I can't get you to, yes, Jesus said let you, yes, but yes, you know, but no, but I can't even get my thumb on you. No, we're, you know, again, to the government, we see that they can't get anything done because everybody's just sort of slipping around and sliding and it can't get, so literally, they, you know, it just gets worse and worse and worse. And I, I'm not that old, but I'm old enough to been around a few of these cycles. This is nothing new. It's just getting worse and worse and worse, and that's because we started with taking God out. We started with, I am now exchanging the truth of God for a lie. This is just a part of the ride. Welcome to, you know, they talk about the, I don't know if your, your grandma or grandpa ever said that, but that boy's going to hell on a grease pole. You hear that? This is not a grease pole, but it's a slide. It's a slide into destruction, a slide into death. Verse 32, he says that who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those that practice them. I look at this and of course, I'm really grateful for where this started, which was the gospel, the amazing news. And when Paul does this, have you been to a jewelry store? A couple of you guys, young guys getting married, you got to go to the jewelry store. What are they going to do? They're going to stick that diamond on a piece of black velvet or felt because it makes the sparkle and the shine out of it. What Paul has just done in verses 18 through 32 is paint a black sheet so that that diamond of the gospel shines clearly to us. But it would be remiss of me, did I use that word right? Uh, to, To skip over that without saying that even though The great news is that Jesus paid the price. He cashed my check for me. That's amazing news. That it isn't about getting to heaven for me on that. What I would be foolish to not realize is that Paul would say in Galatians 5, God is not mocked. Don't kid yourself. Whatsoever a man sows, that he shall also reap. And he talks about sowing seeds after destruction. And so while this might not cause me spiritual death, there is a death that happens in my life on a very practical, very realizable way when I start messing around with this stuff. Again, it's why God hates it so much. In Jeremiah 2, he would say to the Israelites, it's your own backsliding that hunted you down. That there is a destruction that happens, not just to you personally, but to people around you. That's why I hate sin. It kills us when I, you, you know, I, you guys that are out here that are sneaking around with pornography, it kills intimacy. It kills your marriage. There's death that happens in fornication. If you're single and you are in fornication with someone that you are not married to, and you young people hear me say this, when you do that, your soul is connected to this person. You wonder why on The Bachelor that lady goes crazy every week, and it just depends on which one. She's going crazy because her soul got connected to a guy. It wasn't just, there's no such thing as a friend with benefits. Your soul got connected, and so when it's ripped apart, there's destruction in your soul and destruction in your heart. And here's the thing, young people, it's just divorce practice. It kills your soul. Slandering, I'm killing the reputation of someone else. He's not there, she's not there, but I'm murdering their reputation. I'm saying things about them that Jesus says is not true. Because he says that I'm righteous and you're righteous. Covetousness, I said it, it killed our financial system. It killed our economy. Because we're so busy, I wanted something that I already had enough of. Disobedience to parents, it's killing your family. You're saying things to your mom, to your dad that you can't get back. That toothpaste, once it's out of the tube, try to put it back in, go home, just try. It doesn't, it's out. It's killing a piece of your family. Ultimately though, there is one more person 
that Paul wrote to. Who do we say? The heathen? The hypocrite? The Hebrew? But there's one more, and I hope that it's you, and I hope that it's me. He was writing to the heirs in Christ. In Romans 8, 17, he would say that, that we would be heirs, co-heirs with Christ, heirs in Christ. If we participate in the fellowship of his sufferings and Christ and being in a relationship with him, that now I'm, I'm none of the above. I am an heir in Christ. And that is the great news of the gospel. The great news because some of you, man, you, you're like, if you were going to go down the checklist, you're like, oh, yep, that's me, yep, that's me, that's me. And it's like, now what do I do? I feel hopeless. Jeremiah 2, you can go there later in verse 13. He says, my people have committed two sins, talking about Israel, that had a relationship with them, that they forsook the fountains of living water that I have brought them, and they went and they hewed out cisterns for themselves. And a cistern in that part of the world is like a rock uh, hole to hold water. And if you've ever been around digging, hammering, chiseling away at a rock, it's a lot of work. And he's saying, over here, I've got this fountain of living water, but you're over here digging and hewing, and then it says that you can't even hold water. Because the bummer is that sometimes you got far enough into it, and it was almost done, and then there's a crack, and it doesn't hold water. <laughs> he says, that's what you've been doing. He says, to return to me. But they were over there with that thing, and the only thing now that it's good for, if you've been to Israel, you know, it was a grave. It was a tomb. They'd use them for tombs because they couldn't hold water. And he says, to return to me. And somewhere a few verses later, Israel says, oh, but it's just we have no hope. I think hopelessness is one of the greatest enemies of holiness in our world because I just, there's, no, there's no use. I already screwed it up enough. There's no hope. It's like Eeyore Christianity. Oh, I just messed it up. I can't do it. And I'm not trying to be, make light of it, but there was a young man that sat at our table this last week, 10 years into a walk through recovery and has a fascinating ability to hit the self-destruct button in his life. And we caught the tail end of one. And, but he sat at the table going, I, I've just wasted my life. There's no hope. We talked for two days in and out of him kicking. And, uh, Finally, on the last day when we're getting ready to send him to uh, some family and friends, he said, I, I, have, I have hope as we put him on a plane. Hope is found not in how good I can do this, but in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation. He would say in 1 Corinthians 15, 1, what is the gospel? That it is Jesus Christ came, he was crucified, he died, was buried, resurrected on the third day, just as the scriptures foretold. But that is the gospel. The results of the gospel are in the following verses. And he talks about how that power now resides inside of us. That I have the hope. Unlike Israel, I don't have to walk away and say, oh, there's no hope. I can turn around and say, I'm going to turn in. In fact, Paul would use a phrase called redeeming the time. Have you heard that phrase? What I said to this young man was, think of this like this last 10 years of your life, and I hope this is a word for some of you this morning, is like a Groupon. And I'm handing it in for the next 10 years. I got half the living, twice the impact for the next 10 years of my life. I'm exchanging that 10, it wasn't a waste, I'm just cashing it in, I'm redeeming it, right? You go to redeem your Groupon, redeeming it for the next 10 years of your life, that is the power of God unto salvation because he can take that time. He would say that to Israel at the time that the canker worm and all the, the locusts have stolen and I can multiply it to you. And so if you find yourself in a position today where I, maybe you're struggling with the sin or maybe you've just given up and said this is just how I am, I can't do this anymore. I'm saying that there's hope, and that hope is Jesus Christ. The power of the gospel that he died was resurrected on the third day, just as the scriptures foretold. And that Paul would go on to say that that same power that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. Not because you're good enough. It just does, because that's the way he resides. And so as I begin to believe that and establish myself in grace, the yoke is broken. He would say that in Jeremiah 2 as the verse goes on, that I broke the yoke off of you and you just put another one on. By the way, that word, when it talks about breaking the yoke, it actually means it shattered it. So any yoke that I, if I walk away from something and I've defeated it, 
and I fall back into it, that's not an old yoke. That's a brand new one that the enemy has put on me because God shattered the other one. My prayer today as we worship for just a while longer that God will shatter that yoke in your life and in mine, that the power of God unto salvation, that that black backdrop in your life is painted white. He said in Isaiah that though your sins are scarlet, they'll be washed and white as snow, and that you can then walk in the way that the Israelites chose not to at that point in our life. You can kick the Eeyore out and move forward as a son and a daughter of God, full of the power of the Holy Spirit, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of God unto salvation. Any area where you feel like that that is a thing where I can't, some of you feel like there's a bondage and a struggle in that area, and I would ask for you today to just give it to the Lord. I'm glad to pray with you. I'm right here. Um, you don't even have to tell me what. We just pray. And the power of the Holy Spirit, it says it's the anointing that breaks the yoke, not you, but the power of the Holy Spirit inside of you so that ultimately we can stand before him clothed in his righteousness and listen to me, not only not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but not ashamed of me. The woman that he encountered that had been caught in adultery and says that he wrote the names, well, he just says he wrote, it doesn't say what he wrote, but I think it's the first sermon that Jesus ever wrote. And I think what he did is he wrote the names of everybody standing there that wanted to accuse her and wrote the sin next to their name that they had been doing, that they're caught in. Because it says one by one, they walked away. And it says that that day she stood there, he said, where are your accusers? She said, there are none, I have none. And I want you to know that I think that she stood there for the first time in her life. As God intended us, as Eve first stood there naked and unashamed because it's washed and it's redeemed and he took care of it, he paid it, he cashed it. He didn't wink and nod at it. He paid it because he's right and he's righteous. Father, might your words um, impact our hearts today, not mine, but yours, that we can be not slaves but heirs in Christ. That is the good news of the gospel. And that those of us that struggle with sin and the damage and the collateral things around us that maybe are happening, I just ask that you would redeem that today. Break the yoke in our lives. Give us the power, your power to defeat, to overcome, to deliver us, not through a program or steps, but through your power. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys stand with us.